Movie Geeks United is on the air. Uh, a little bit later on the show, we'll have Adam Long joining us for the April B- Blu-ray releases. But first, let's talk about a couple of uh, topics, uh, the primary of which is uh, the death of Jonathan Demme. I want to get everyone's impression on the output of this great director who I, you know, I know that we all appreciate him. Um, and I, I, I really, uh, really liked him. He was a sweet, I think everyone that ever encountered him outside of Goldie Hawn <laughs> thought he was, thought he was really, really a sweet man. Don't make me cough like that, man. Um, but yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the reaction that, uh, uh, well, of course I was saddened by, but I, I read some of the reactions of some of my fellow movie geeks on, on Facebook and so forth, and all of them were very respectful, obviously, and, and everything, but a few of them really rubbed me the wrong way, and I kept seeing it. I saw it at least three or four times where they said, well, he's cut, he's a good craftsman, but he wasn't really an auteur. And I said, I... I I, it was everything I could do to keep from, you know, writing a huge missive back to them saying, I don't know what you're talking about because he was an auteur. He was, he had a very specific stamp, uh, not only mm. visually, but the, in the way that he told the story in the sort of novelistic way. I mean, if you look at Handle with Care, the, the, uh, the CB radio movie, which is also called Citizens Band, uh, Melvin and Howard, uh, even Swing Shift and uh, uh, Something Wild and Married to the Mob, you don't even have to have the sound on to know that they come from the same director. You can look at them and and tell. Now, when you cut the sound on, that's where it becomes really obvious because the guy mm-hmm. has a mas- The guy had a mastery of using music in movies, particularly pop music mm-hmm. and, and world pop music. Uh, yeah, all all from all around the world, and that continued all the way to the very end with uh, with uh, Ricky and the Flash. Yeah, uh, and, absolutely. And of course, let's let's don't forget the elephant in the room. Stop making sense. And his other uh, uh, the music Neil documentaries. Young, the Neil yeah, Young the one that came out like ten yeah. years ago. The, heart, the one which is just a, a straight concert film. Really, yeah. the I went to AFI to see that. I don't. I don't know of another director that could have pulled that off that well on the big screen. Um, well, and yeah, by the way, know, also, I mean, he, he. I think he made multiple Neil Youngs, but and he yes, also he just last year made the Justin Timberlake film, yeah. which ended up, ended up on several top ten lists for the end of the year. And also, you know, storefront storefront Hitchcock, which yes. was about Robin and, Hitchcock. So. <laughs> I mean, and and also he directed. Uh, I don't know if many people know this, but he also directed Sun City. You know that that uh, the Artists Against Apartheid thing that came he, out in the. 80s. He also Dean. I mean, before we go any further, let's not forget the two political documentaries he made. At least the two political documentaries he made this century: The Agronomist and uh, Jimmy Carter, Man from the Plains. Both mm-hmm. very good documentaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, superb. That, I mean, that was great the, films. That was the other part I was going to bring out was the uh, was the political side of him, which was obviously you know obviously he was a director that uh, 
believed in, well, in his narrative films, believed in characters that really push back against society in some way. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, but but that that carries back over into his documentary work, which really sort of controls the last third of his career, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he, started, he started off, his career kind of went in three stages with the Roger Corman stuff, then, then with you know the meat of his career in the eighties uh, and nineties, and then and then the last phase, which uh, which is uh, I would say a little bit more of an activist kind of career than uh, one that was you know out for big bucks at the box office. But can we talk about his relationship to actresses? Because I think we always talk about Woody Allen and Pedro Almodovar. He had a unique relationship with actresses. He wrote superb parts for women. Um, even if the movies were not 100% successful, he really gave his actresses. And let's let's talk about Meryl Streep. Um, regardless of what we think about the remake of The Manchurian Candidate, um, it's not. It doesn't work on all thrusters, but it is a fascinating performance from Streep. Um, we, it is something that I think we'll be talking about decades from now, that performance, because I do think it's... Um, well, and, wh- and what, he, what he does with somebody like... Uh with Melanie Griffith in Something Wild or even yeah. somebody like Mary Steenburgen and Steenburge Melvin and Howard. And, or uh, Michelle I mean, Pfeiffer. You know, the, the, yeah, the thing that I um, caught on to in the various posts I've read, first of all, I was thrilled that a lot of people mentioned what I like best about his movies is that you get a sense of a real humanist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. we, need more, we need more film filmmakers like that. There's There's this kind of overwhelming love of of humanity in his movies and even in something like silence of the lambs so th- this is the other mm-hmm. thing that i've yes. seen mentioned there seems to be people went sour on him after silence of the lambs i think it's the whole thing of well once he went main, once he hit mainstream success he became less interesting i guess maybe you can make a case for that that his movies prior to that were more eclectic but uh silence of the lambs Pretend like it didn't win Best Picture and hundreds of millions of dollars. That is a very eclectic movie for Jonathan Demme yeah. to tackle. For Jonathan mm-hmm. Demme to do a movie of that of that sort. To follow up Married story. with the Mob, which is yeah. <laughs> which is a pretty crazy, wacky movie. With it, it, it's a very fun movie, though. It's a very it fun. Is. I mean, but let me let's let's go. Let's talk about. All right, I guess we're talking about After Silence of the Lambs. Philadelphia is the first movie, right? After Silence of the Lambs, right? Other than which the, he's also other than the, the bad rap for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other let's than, talk about. He also did film. the he did the documentary Cousin Bobby. You know. Oh about, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's good. Good, yeah. good, good, yeah. good call there. But let's talk about Philadelphia for a second. We always, you know, everyone always makes the big deal about Tom Hanks. But it's Denzel Washington that really has the truly um, moving performance in that film. I agree. I mean, because his character changed. I mean, it's like screen. I hate to say it, but it's like screenwriting 101. But it's his character that actually goes through a change. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, and I it's the same thing with something, a, like, something like Rain Man belonging yeah. to Tom Cruise, because that's the, yeah. you know, the other person set in one gear and, the, uh, and one person changed. But the, with Philadelphia, you know, he got a bad rap for not showing kissing between two lovers, between Tom Hanks and Antonio Manderas. That was the big beef. And he said, look, I understood that I was making a mainstream movie. The, the, the motive of this movie was to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible with mm-hmm. major movie stars as the first big studio AIDS movie. 
Uh, right, and he right. said, you know, we, we had enough stumbling blocks to get over to get to Joe Schmo in middle America through, with this thing. And right. Philadelphia meant a lot to, meant a lot to people. The fact that it, it broke the mold and, 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 and just doing that, a mainstream movie about the AIDS crisis. And when I watched that movie there and talk about visual style, <clears throat> I mean, it's in silence of lambs and his other movies, certainly, but in Philadelphia, the whole mode he has of having the, the actress look directly into the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he employs it to such great effect in Philadelphia because the, the the camera actually when Tom Hanks first visits Denzel Washington's office and the camera's panning where Denzel Washington's looking at every object in the office that Tom Hanks is touching because mm-hmm. there's such fear and that's how he expresses that fear that Denzel Washington has. And by the way, also with Denzel Washington, you have a major Hollywood actor who's playing a guy that says right up front. Let's talk about our hatred of homosexuals, our fear, of mm-hmm. because I'm guilty of that. Right. Essentially, that character said, and that in itself is a, was was a brave thing as well. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, I I think what I what I, you know, I noticed that too, Dean. And a lot of people said, well, you know, he hadn't made anything good, but look, he he gave us Sandy Newton. He made Sandy Newton a mainstream actress, regardless of what we think of beloved. You know, even though beloved is like a, how shall we say it is overshadowed by over Oprah Winfrey. He does, you know, he does bring Sandy Newton into the mainstream. Um, the other thing that I think people is the last movie. I know you're not crazy about it, Dean. I, I like it, Ricky and the Flash, but it is actually, uh, given recent events, Meryl Streep is. I don't think I've ever seen an actor or actress play so against type as Meryl Streep in that movie in recent history. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's entirely successful, but at least I know. But let's, she, let's she give did, it. She did a. She did an incredible Let's job. Nice if you can. Let's yeah. something nice about it yeah. if you can. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the, the, one of the great things I can say about it is it, it deserved best song for Cold One, you know, right. uh, which I thought was a wonderful scene and, and a wonderful song. Um, and uh, that would have been a great thing for a Jonathan Demi to win best so- uh, movie to win best song. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, of course... You know, I think his last great, you know, really, really good movie was Rachel Getting Married. Uh, that's yes. that's obviously yes. that's right. obviously that uh, a high point in the last third of his career. But um, and a low point too would be Truth About Charlie. The I uh, think that the, is the low. I think <laughs> that's just the the kind of movie you're just like. What were you thinking? That was, that was, I, he might have just wanted to go on a vacation or something while, and he <laughs> or to shoot, <laughs> shoot to shoot in in other places. But um, uh, to me, to me, you know the uh, the people who kind of forgot about him after things like Beloved and so forth, uh, which I've never seen. That's the one that I still haven't seen. But um, it's a curiosity, and I've I, never seen. I've, I've also never seen the the Peter Fonda uh, uh, Corman movie that he did, uh, Fighting Mad. I've never seen that one. But well, I've never. Neither have I. Oh well. <laughs> I found a copy of it online, so I I did start watching it. It was a little brutal for me, but um, <laughs> uh, but uh, especially in terms of Jonathan Demme. But for me, uh, the um, you know the great thing out of his career is, is still stop making sense, you know, uh if 
if he hadn't of, uh, you know, in Stop Making Sense, you know, he was coming off of uh, Swing Shift, and uh, he had a bad experience mm-hmm. with that. And by the way, if you go back and look at Swing Shift, it's still a good movie. It's got mm-hmm. great, it's it got great uh, female performances in it too, from Goldie Hawn and and Christine Lottie, who was nominated right. for an Oscar for it. But um, uh, he was coming off of that, had a bad experience with that, and uh, and you can feel that Stop Making Sense sort of freed him again. And uh, there, there, yeah. 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 There there's a sense of there's a true sense of soaring as a director. Uh why, you know you can feel him soaring, you know, uh watching that movie. Uh I mean, yeah. it's the talking talking heads get get co-directing credit, but they really directed the stage part of the show. He's the one directing the film part of the show, and it is pure cinema. Um, it is not just a movie for fans. I think you'll be conver- converted to a fan once you see it. But uh, but it is it is a movie. Uh, it is a movie movie. <laughs> you know, it is just mm-hmm. a, a huge visual and oral experience. And uh, and and it just can't be denied. I mean, I think I think that's that's his real crowning achievement. Even though most people would say it's Silence of the Lambs, which I love, but uh, I've had a little enough of <laughs> to tell you right, the truth. Right. <laughs> well, you know, when I when I when I think about the markers of his career, I mean, there's there's some absolutes. His his you his interest in people, uh, his his humanity, his uh, devotion to kind of his ear for regional music um, and some of the collaborations he's had, like with his uh, Tech Fujimoto, uh, who's done great work with him as a cinematographer and that sort of thing. But really, I mean, he, he did branch out quite a bit. You know, it was, it, it, you, you did get the sense that he wanted to expand his wheelhouse throughout his career. Uh, you know, and he did it, he made a go of it. Let me just say, like, when I, when we interviewed him in 2012, 2013, something like that, it was for a music documentary that he did on the, I think, a Brazilian uh, um, uh, musician. <clears throat> and uh, it was being released, uh, like, something like 26 years to the day of Stop Making Sense. So we talked a little bit about that. He was late to the interview because he hadn't arrived at his office yet, and he was very apologetic about it. But uh, and he was so uh, sweet. Um, I mean, that's I got off the phone with him. I thought, what a nice, nice man. Um, so you could feel that just in a 30-minute mm. conversation with him. And very, I mean, you hear, hear from, like, Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. When uh, Jonathan Demme was sick and nobody knew uh, just last year, or earlier this year, he moderated Q and A's with Barry Jenkins to kind of champion Moonlight because he loved mm-hmm. that movie. He had nothing to gain in that, you know. And also, uh, our, our my friend uh, Alex Johnson, the director of Two Step, uh, he uh, who lives in Austin, um, he entered into a um, director symposium that was. Uh, uh, that was chaired by uh, Demi and um, Richard Linkletter. 
and uh, he, he had nothing but great things to say about him. And he, uh, you know, from the photos, you can tell that Demi is is probably sick at that point. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah. he he always gave time to uh, to new filmmakers. Um, and uh, was concerned with what they were doing. Uh, just incredibly generous, you know. And and uh, and then you hear from other film critics who became friends with him. Uh, you know, he he became friends with film critics. <laughs> so uh, that that's you hear from some of them, and and they would recognize each other at airports and stuff, and have uh, have little chats and stuff. So. It, I think that's just wonderful. He, he was obviously, you know, somebody who embraced embraced people, um, and you can just tell it in his movies too. I mean, he has such immense understanding, especially in those early '80s movies. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Melvin and Howard and and uh, and Handle with Care. You can really sense his his uh, his empathy uh, towards these people. Uh, uh, even though they're, they're highly misunderstood and, and, and very quirky, uh, I think he he embraced that uh, about them. Uh, he 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 loved the quirks uh, and and, uh, and with an edge, wild. And with an edge too, in a in a way that was not precious. I mean, like something wild under a lesser director it would have been. Oh, aren't they cute? And aren't and aren't they you know in quotes quirky? Don't you just love them? And then you have this major tonal shift in something wild. <laughs> it's just jaw-dropping. And, a, and an introduction to Ray Liotta for a lot of people in that movie. Right. I mean, he really came out in a big way mm-hmm. in that film. He was just a, um, a major filmmaker. Let's just face it. And uh, it's a loss. Yeah, it is. It's a big loss. Okay, Adam's on. Oh, it is. Adam. Adam, what's your Hi, favorite guys. Demi? Hey. I'm probably going to go with Dean on the Stop Making Sense. That's just phenomenal filmmaking. Um, setting it aside from the uh, concert realm, it really is just pure cinema, like he said. And I, I, I totally totally agree with that. Uh, although there are a lot of other ones, Melvin and Howard, I, I've always been a big fan of that. And um, and the Guilty Pleasures, some of those earlier Corman ones are uh, yeah, if I'm in the right mood, like Caged Heat, <laughs> they're 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 among the better. Uh, Caged Heat and Crazy Mama are among amongst the better Corman movies of that period. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. He and I'll tell you a movie that I really like that he did that doesn't get enough attention uh, is the documentary he did about Jimmy Carter in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Man from Plains. Uh, I still need to I, see that. It's I a great movie. That, it really is. It really is. And it's one of his lesser-known films. And I was just – I mean, I was – I'm a Jimmy Carter fan. I mean, let's face it. I'll just go ahead and say it. And you, whether or not you are, you will be by the time that movie is over, I guess, mm-hmm. because mm. – uh, you, he, his humanity and, and concern for other people just bleeds through every frame of that film, uh, for me anyway. Uh, you just see him, you know, doing and and for a guy that was in his probably mid eighties at that point, uh, at least early eighties, and he's just the, the energy level that he captures on film of him just. Uh, he's on a book tour, and he captures him. Yeah, you know, just uh, remember a very place. controversial book tour. Oh yeah, yes, 
I mean, remember, he is... The Palestine? And, um, he's calling yeah. out... I mean, he's calling, remember, he's using the word apartheid in a, in for a group of people who are very offended. And that whole, those couple of years there, it's very rocky. And it, it was a very mm-hmm. bold, very brave of him. I, I, I really commend him for doing that. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that documentary is so important. And you're right, Adam. It just doesn't get the attention it deserves. I mean... I got to see it. Uh, there's, you know, I want to mention a few other things. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what we all feel about Last Embrace, the Roy Scheider, Janet Margolin thing that he uh, thriller that he did. It's not entirely successful, but it is entertaining, uh, and it, it is kind of a, a you know a departure for him, especially in that p- period of his career where he's really trying to do something a little different. But also, there are two television uh, projects that he did. One he did for American Playhouse, which is also, uh, uh, you know, very rarely mentioned. But uh, it's called Who Am I This Time? And it's with uh, Susan Sarandon and uh, Christopher Walken playing two amateur actors who who are in love and, and trying to get through a play, a new play. And uh, that's that's very wonderful. It's only an hour long, and I think you can still find it. I, I found it on uh, once on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, but also, he did a he produced a really great. And again, this is another thing that he did with music. He produced a really great uh, TV show called Alive from Off Center uh, that came on uh, in PBS in the eighties uh, and would feature you know live performances from. Laurie Anderson and or you know Eric Bogosian and of course Spalding Gray. We're not even mentioning Swimming the Kids, right, yeah. <laughs> which is another mm-hmm. masterpiece that absolutely yeah. has his stamp on it. I mean, to, to for anybody to for anybody to to say that he he wasn't uh, an auteur is just get the fuck out of here. Oh he yeah, was. Man, definitely get the fuck he out. Was, yeah. uh, he was he was somebody who had his own. Particular step uh, on on things. Uh, we, would it be fair to say that the people saying this don't know what the hell an author is? Uh, we actually, or they have say that they have some kind of mis- yes, they have some kind of mistaken idea that uh, you have to be able to tell from one shot that this is directed by this person, or else it, <laughs> you don't qualify. You know, that's you know, but. I would contend that you can tell from one shot. <laughs> if, if you see a shot from a Jonathan Demi movie, I, I think you could be able to tell. You know, the I, I think are, so. I have to say I agree with you, Dean. I, I, I think, you know, can I just, going back to the auteur thing, I think, I you know, I started watching Five, came back late last night. I, I still have to I will finish it, but... um. Go go watch that and then get back to me about what you think an auteur is, guys. Yes. Okay, for, the, for those that were making that that criticism, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he was a craftsman, but he was he was one one with uh, personality and uh, obvious uh, obvious personal concerns. Uh, and uh, and I and frankly, I just I just love the fact that he just embraced music in in movies. I mean, I think those uh, those soundtracks for some of those movies are some of the best ones. I mean, if you could get a complete something wild soundtrack with every needle drop uh, uh, that's in that movie, 
that that would be astounding. I mean, first of all, it would probably be a, a triple album, <laughs> you know. But uh, it, you know his uh, his mastery of that kind of stuff, and even going into things like uh, you know. Uh, uh, Music videos and stuff, and, and uh, even even special editions or uh, video documentaries and things like that. Uh, he he was he was amazing. You know? Well, I think yeah. he knew. To, I mean, obviously, he loved music, but he, he probably also knew that music was the fastest trigger to someone's humanity. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it is in life. I mean, it's mm-hmm. almost like. You might as well be hooked up to an IV, and you're being mm-hmm. pumped in humanity when you listen to some songs that that recall a memory or a moment or an emotion. You know, they work mm-hmm. a lot faster than movies do. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, let me, Adam. Uh, we're going to get to Blu-rays in just a second. I just want to bring up something. Sure. I read the most extraordinary article over the week, and I posted it on the Movie Geeks United Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Movie Geeks United. Um, did you guys read this about that the, the Zodiac Killer? It's a 1971 movie, Exploitation. It was produced, it was released less than a month after uh, the first murders, I think. Oh, wow. No, it was, it, yeah, it was released less than a month after the, the Chronicle started receiving letters from him. Um, it's a really bad, cheapo exploitation movie, but it was made for the sole purpose of capturing the Zodiac Killer. So he made this in you know, probably a couple of days, and he held a week of screenings at this theater in San Francisco and advertised it, and he had all these people positioned around the theater and tape recorders and a, and a – a card to sign up for a contest where right. people would fill out fill out this card and, and and fill out why they think what motivated what motivates the Zodiac killer. And uh, it, read this article that's linked on our page. Yeah, it is extraordinary, and he says that he thinks that he encountered the Zodiac killer, and and he even had a fight with him. And the guy wrote on the card, "I am the Zodiac." And the cops got involved, and it just became a big cluster fuck. But, uh, <laughs> man, what a story. And it reminded me that there are so many stories out there, like unique pieces of film-related history, that we have no idea about. It's just it's just tapping the right shoulder. Uh, no, nobody's probably asked this guy about this in, like, 40 years. So, because who's going to want to interview the person that directed this, the Zodiac Killer in 71? Nobody thinks about it. But there are all kinds of people with stories like this. They're just incredible. Yeah. I remember reading about reading the uh, Robert Graysmith book uh, that, of course, Zodiac is based on, and uh, pondering, uh, wondering about that movie because, you know, there, there, is, there is a chapter devoted to that. Uh, and they don't uh, they don't talk to the director of the movie or anything or Graysmith didn't at least. Uh, but uh, I remember pondering it and and them describing you know they had a little um, display in the lobby where they had that box where you could drop in those <laughs> cards and I was like yeah. wow I I really want to see this movie <laughs> but uh, I've yeah. kind of forgotten about it so I. 
I, I, uh, do they I, have plans on sure. releasing the movie or anything like I that? I have no idea. Or, I think I think parts of parts of it are online. I mean, I saw the scene by the riverbank where the couple gets murdered. Um, but uh, I am sure the circumstances surrounding the premiere of that movie are much more interesting than the movie itself. Uh, but, yeah. you know, and he he even says that uh, the Grace Smith book got a lot of it wrong, so he corrects the record, so to speak. Uh, oh, really? Interview. Okay, good. Interesting. Okay. I okay, well, that's that. that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Adam, <clears throat> April Blu-rays. Uh, and I'll make sure that I get this on the air before next April. Um, what do, does it look like a good month this month or what? Uh, yeah, it's not quite as uh, as filled with the kind of delights that we found in March. If you re- recall, with uh, yes. when we last left off, it was Wonton Ton, uh, the dog who saved Hollywood. And well, I mean, can you really top that? I mean, no. you, I mean, all right. But uh, yeah, there's some good stuff here, though. There's some good stuff. It was a little light, I thought, uh, in terms of releases. But that's getting ready to change. I think in May, there's some pretty interesting titles. But there's still a few things definitely worth seeking out, as we will see. Uh, we'll start with this one from Mill Creek, and we'll go back to April 4th. And Mill Creek has, uh, I think they've licensed, sublicensed some of the. Um, the uh, Sony Pictures titles uh, that were uh, originally Hammer Productions, horror films. And this is a really good deal uh, as far as the price. You can get this disc for $7 on Blu-ray, and it's a collection of three Hammer films, The Creeping Flesh, Brotherhood of Satan, and Torture Garden. Well, Brotherhood of Satan is not uh, – that's not a – that's just a Columbia Pictures title. But anyway, the other two I think are Hammer or – uh, Torture Garden's Amicus. Okay, one hammer, one Amicus, and one. But anyway, they're all yeah. three really good uh, horror films. From, Torture Garden uh, is also known as Doctor Tar's tor- Torture Garden, I believe. So yeah, that's yes. A, that's oh that's, my god, that's that, that idea. Oh my, we're really go- we're really going back here. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's well, an Amicus anthology movie. So it is. It was the second. The first was Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, which is right. available on Blu-ray. And uh, this was the second one, and then they wound up doing, I think, next one was uh, House That Dripped Blood, yeah. I believe. And then they did Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and uh, Asylum. So they did yeah. quite a few of them. But uh, this is – I think all of these stories are written by Robert Block. So I would say it's worth the $6 and or $7 just for Torture Garden, if, if even if you don't care about the others. But uh, Brotherhood of Satan's not bad. Strother Martin's in that, so uh, and it's always interesting to see him have a lead role, which he does in this one. Ah, that's interesting. I never knew that. That's, that's yeah. Cute. I think the only two films he had a lead role in were, was that and <laughs> the one with oh. snakes. <laughs> so uh. those were the only two. So good old Strother Martin. But uh, anyway, Psycho God Circus. Strother Martin. Uh, yeah. Exactly. One of the greats. But uh, it, uh, Psycho Circus is, like I said, three movies for the price of one, and we're talking seven bucks. So if you, if you have any interest in 60s uh, horror or early 70s horror, that's just, you know that's not a bad way to go. Uh, yeah. Punchline is another Mill Creek release, uh, and I'm talking about the 1988 uh, film with Tom Hanks and Sally Field uh, where they're struggling stand-up comics. 
Mm. And, uh, Hanks is really good in that movie. I remember it's mm-hmm. a, a really wonderful scene outside the club where he does. He, you know, I haven't seen it since the '80s, but uh, I, I remember he was doing. Uh, you know, Sally Field is looking out at him. He's kind of, he's kind of on his way to a breakdown, and he does. He does some kind of little routine in the rain, and she's looking at him, you know, from, from yeah. inside the club. That's that's really that really stuck with me, uh, and uh, uh, not a bad movie actually. I mean, uh, particularly when it comes to Hanks' performance. Yeah, it's uh, directed by David Seltzer, I believe, the guy who wrote The Omen, and right. Uh, he also wrote The Other Side of the Mountain. Before that, so you know he's more famous as a screenwriter, I guess. But he directed a couple of things, and that's one of them. Uh, so another Mill Creek release, like I said, they're, they've licensed these Sony titles, and another one's Little, Little Nikita uh, with Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix, and that's an interesting combination. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to. It's weird because you have to. I was reading about River Phoenix's death in another in someone's um, autobiography this week, and I, you know, I remember after he died, I, I wanted to actually go back and like buy everything of his on VHS, including this one. Yeah. I think I may have this on VHS somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, this uh, also has Richard Jenkins in it, and uh, directed by Richard Benjamin. So, um, yeah. God bless Richard Benjamin. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, was his, uh, it was his big follow-up to Saturday the 14th, wasn't it? That's, hey, don't watch <laughs> that movie, man. That's... Hey, you, you know, Richard Benjamin somewhere. had a pretty, pretty. I thought he was going to really blossom into like a really uh, big director, like the kind of director that uh, uh, actor turned director that Rob Reiner took uh, turned into. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but with uh, you know. Uh, my favorite year, which I, I, I still absolutely love, and uh, and racing with the moon, the mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, those are, I mean those are really eighty staples. Those things. I mean, if he did nothing else but my favorite year, that would be enough. I mean, uh-huh. that movie yeah. is such a revelation uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, no, I agree with you, Gene. That's, that's a good point, actually. Why that never really happened, though. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. This is very true, very true. Yeah, he was uh he definitely um uh was on his way and I don't know what happened there, but he definitely he had a couple of box office successes. Didn't he do uh, the first uh was it three the three men and a baby, I think, maybe? No, that was Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, that was Leonard Nimoy. Oh, okay, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did it was Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, I don't know why I was thinking that. You know, it's but, interesting but, though, and this is this is something that people don't consider. Uh, last night I uh, attended this uh, film festival and uh, Robert Davi and Joey Pants were there and Robert <laughs> Davi just just did a documentary about him touring singing Sinatra in concert he's like this big Sinatra crooner <clears throat> and they're both really nice really nice guys but oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Dav- in, in the movie Davi's talking to a casting Lynn um, Stallmaster um, and he's trying to figure out why why wasn't I bigger in movies? Um, first of all, I mean he's very honest about his face and his complexion and all that kind of stuff. But he was in License to Kill with uh, Benicio del Toro. Benicio del Toro got big, and Davi did not. And 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 Lin's, I mean he had a you know he has a 
career where he can always get into movies here and there in a certain kind of role. So he's not hard up for work. But um, And Stallmaster said it, it was the fact that you kept accepting the jobs that came to you instead of waiting. He said Del Toro waited a year mm-hmm. for the right script. Uh, and and if I had the right script, I wouldn't be able to to, to get you because you were busy on another job. So that, that's an that's an interesting thing that I, I didn't really consider. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that happened to Richard Benjamin. Maybe there were better movies out there, but he didn't can wait I, for them. Can I, I just I, add something to that? Mm-hmm. Though I do have to say, though, for what it's worth, though, that Robert, I, I know this. I'm not telling him for because I enjoyed our interview with him very much for the Duke. Um, several years ago, but that that turn in the James, he was for a very long time one of the best James Bond villains, though for many many years. Um, it took a long. Yeah. I mean, I would say until Javier Bardem, to be very honest with you, one of the best villains the series had, if that's any consolation to him. But I understand what you're saying. He did. You would see. I mean, the son of the Pink Panther. Um, a year <laughs> later, or two years <laughs> later. I mean, I, I. She's absolutely right. Um. I mean, I, I think about people waiting. I, I wonder why people don't wait as well. I, I have considered it because uh, I know they say they, they want to work and everything like that. But, yeah, but do you really want to work that? I know it's important to you and everything, but there are other options. You know, you could, could do a play or something, you know. If you, if, if you have enough money to – to live on and everything. Uh, it, it seems well. It's, 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 it's hard though, man. I mean, the the, the life of an actor is one of paranoia. Uh, um, so mm-hmm. so I mean, it, you're hot right now, and you're afraid that no it's going to yeah, cool no off. No telling how long that'll last. Yeah, so make the very most of it. I mean, you see I, this with the actors that make a comeback, and they and they work too much. In the immediate aftermath of that, I mean, it, it happened with uh, Travolta. I think he did too mm-hmm. many movies. numerous times. So three, <laughs> yeah, three movies a year from Travolta is too too many. Post Pulp Fiction, just wait for the good one. Yeah, yeah, it happens uh, a lot. Um, you know, looking at Richard uh, Benjamin's career, just to just to be fair, he he really did have like a a long career as a director. Uh, you know. Uh, you know, but they're they're not the greatest movies. City Heat, uh, The Money Pit, uh, which was a big hit and a kind of a cult movie, I guess. And My Stepmother's an Alien, which I think was also a hit. But then things like you know, Made in America or Milk Money or <laughs> Mrs. Know. Mrs. Winterborn. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> and Mermaids, which is kind of a, a sort of a bright spot in in all of that, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, he should have waited for the right things. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But well, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, how about Invasion of the Bee Girls from 1973? Oh wow! <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, I think this was the first film that uh, Nicholas Meyer had a credit for, who later on directed, of course, The Day After in the second Star Trek film. Or time he, After Time and The Seven Percent Solution. 
Right, yeah. I think he's just, he got the screenplay credit on this. This is where he got his start. I've never seen it, actually, but Screen Factory is issuing it or has issued it uh, for those who may be interested in checking it out. I've always heard good things about it, but just never did. Hey, see remember it. Siskel and Ebert championing it on, on a very early episode of Sneak Previews of um, of uh, cult movies and everything. They championed this early on. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's true. That's very true. Uh, it's it's got a it it definitely has a cult following. So, uh, but Screen Factory has has put that out with uh, the uh, <coughs> a, a good a decent amount of extras like they usually do. Um, and going back to Sony, uh, they've got their uh, video on demand where they press these discs as they're um, as people buy them, um, and they are issuing Finding Forrester for <laughs> the one of the Sean Connery's. Uh, last films before he retired. Um, That's a Gus Van Sant, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's an odd, <laughs> odd movie. Gus Van Sant. That's another one that's like I don't know. He's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm having trouble with Gus Van Sant these days. But uh, yeah, yeah uh, I think I can miss that one. <laughs> yeah, but again, any film that has uh, Sean Connery paired with Busta Rhymes in its cast uh, can't be totally dismissed. So, <laughs> anyway. Is that, is that uh, a double bill with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I mean. Yeah, yeah, this is true. So, uh, Why We Fight, the documentary from 2008, uh, Sony uh, Pictures is putting that one out, or has issued that one on Blu-ray as well. Uh, there's also, I failed to mention this last month, I want to get it out there, uh, a new Blu-ray restoration of Cinema Paradiso that Arrow Academy oh, cool. has put out that is it's quite stunning. Uh, I, I took a look at the disc, and I have to say, uh, the clarity of the picture and the sound, it's just amazing uh, what they've done to uh, the, the amount of detail in the picture, and it's just it's stunning. And uh, so I want to mention that because I uh, missed that last month. Uh, it does have the director's cut and the theatrical version both, and it has some documentaries and a uh, profile of the director and whatnot. So um, anyway, for any Cinema Paradiso fans, I know Here's my question. Is the director's cut substantially different from the original? Because I don't think I've seen the director's cut. It is. Um, yes, it is. It's, it's very a lot different. longer. Um, I don't know yes. if it's completely necessary. Um, having seen it, seen the director's cut in the theater, I have to honestly say the original mm-hmm. theatrical version is is the definitive version. I think this is a case where you can see why they took out um, certain things. Okay. Well, it has the, an entire separate subplot that's not in the original film where, if you recall, the uh, uh, Toto, the main character, you know, he, he's uh, he's supposed to, he's in love with this girl, and then she's supposed to meet him, but she never does. And then you find out why she didn't meet him, which you don't in the theatrical version, and, there's a, and they finally get back together as middle-aged people. And there's a whole... I didn't think that was necessary, though. I right. honestly didn't. I just didn't think. I remember because I remember why it was like 2002 when I came out, and I just, I just thought I was just this. I, I thought it really dragged, like, bogged the movie down um, considerably. Um, okay. So it was a smart. This is why editing is like really important. Um, and it's also <laughs> important to to realize, that, you know, that when you get a director's cut, you. Sh- 
okay, I know it's the director's cut, and it supposedly got the director's stamp of approval on it and everything like that. But sometimes we don't need that. <laughs> sometimes so they're going they're going against you know their their impulse in the editing room is to get the thing down to a manageable level and right. to make to make it run uh to make a film run smoothly and um and I think sometimes directors cuts uh go the other way and I don't think they need to uh, I agree. I, I agree I, I think, a lot with that. I think I think the impulse to shave your movie down is a valuable one, and just because you have to cut out some very valuable pieces that I know a lot of people put a lot of work into, uh, doesn't mean that they necessarily actually belong in there. Right. <laughs> they just uh, you, you cut them out for a reason, and I think that that's part of the directorial process. So your first cut should be your director's cut. <laughs> that's that's your director's cut. That's the one that you release. Well, I think the case of Cinema Paradiso is interesting because the original uh, version that's labeled as a director's cut, that was the theatrical cut overseas. And then Mm. Harvey Weinstein picked it up, and he said, oh, we don't need this. We'll chop it out. And that may be an instance where Harvey Scissorhands was correct in his assumptions because it does flow, uh, I think, a little bit better. But you know the 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 thing is that that was the technically the original theatrical cut before he got a hold of it. So it's an interesting um, thing. Yeah, it's, it's a little different yeah. than you know. It's it's uh, it's complicated. I know, but uh, but yeah. I I <coughs> I stand by the just the uh, uh, you know. I mean, it is troublesome that <laughs> it's Harvey Weinstein <laughs> that, that made the decision to do this, but. Uh, and I despise his uh, usually despise his his uh, meddling into directors in, while they're editing or after they've edited their movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's a good thing, you know. I mean, sometimes it's good to have somebody in there to say, you know, this this doesn't need to be in here. Because I mean, people love cinema parody so from the moment it came out and. And there's a reason for it, and uh, and I don't think it's good to go back and mess with something that people loved. <laughs> you know, I just, or just you know, I I much prefer it when they just put what's as a supplemental, as an extra. Yes. Yeah. 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 Been removed. That's know. fine. You know. Yeah. I, I think that's that's just fine. Yeah, but um, for whatever it's worth, it's out there for anybody who uh, wants to to see it and it has been fully restored so and it's it's quite something to behold i will say um so uh anyway moving along to april the 11th oh oh one other uh, april 4th title i missed sorry ride the high country the sam peckinpah yeah they issued that uh which has a featurette called a justified life and a commentary by peckinpah biographer uh, well, this is our our old friend Nick Redman that we're always uh, mentioning, who runs Twilight Time. He does the uh, the commentary here along with Paul Cedor, Garner Simmons, and uh, David Weddle. Um, so Paul Cedor is the guy that he did the uh, Wild Bunch. David Weddle is yeah. the one who wrote the the definitive biography on him on um, Peck and Paul. Is he the? Yeah. Is that uh, if they move, shoot him or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's, okay. That's yeah. the definitive one. The yeah. one. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so, I mean, that, that's a fantastic movie, and, you know, we, we have to tell everybody, if you've, if you've never seen Ride the High Country, oh, watch it immediately. It's, you've it's, got it's to superb. watch it. Superb. Superb yeah. It's it's right there, you know. To me, it's right there in with uh, you know um, with uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and of course uh, uh, Wild Bunch is is you know his yeah king, oh yeah no no it's king it's, it's, a, it's a transitional. I mean, it's one of those like transitional westerns. I think we're, we're you know we're getting in a. I mean, it has like old and new elements in it that are just perfect. Um, yeah. It's it's yeah. You're right. It is transitional because it it feels kind of like a '50s movie. But it also feels like a '60s movie, you know. Like there's there's uh, there's a certain freeing uh, of uh, constraints on uh, Peck and Paw in some ways, right? Uh, and uh, and you can really feel like him getting into that uh, world uh, fully, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, he you know up to that point he'd been doing things like uh, I guess he was doing you know endless episodes of The Rifleman, right? Yeah, that, that was, was like the, his big that was his big thing. I mean, for a long time was The Rifleman. Um, so, yeah. which I, I always you know whenever I encounter The Rifleman on uh, online or on TV uh, on me TV or whatever. I always check and see if it's a if it's a peck and pile one. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, but uh, yeah. So watch, watch Ride the High Country if you've never seen it. It's it's absolutely rewarding. Uh, yeah. Don't <laughs> don't throw it aside. True. Yeah. So moving along to April the 11th, uh, the Warner Archive uh, released 36 Hours, directed by George Seaton, and this has um, James Garner. Eva Marie Saint, Rod Taylor, and John Banner of uh, Hogan's Heroes. I guess in one of his rare big screen appearances. Well, so, he's uh, he played uh, Sergeant Schultz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he was like <laughs> the. I think he was one of the first to die of that cast, I believe. Uh, okay. One of the, yeah, but anyway, it's 1965. I have not seen 36 Hours. It's like it's like um, a spy movie or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, George Seaton is yeah. the director. Okay, but uh, and based well, on a Roald Dahl story, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But uh, one of my colleagues, uh, he got a review copy of it and said it's phenomenal. So uh, I don't know. And now I'm very curious because <laughs> yeah. I trust his opinion. So. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, the 1977 horror film Kathy's Curse has been issued by Severin, um, and that's one I really wasn't familiar with until it turned up on the the list of releases. And it has uh, Beverly Murray, Randy Allen, and Alan Scarf. So, yeah. Mm. Okay. So it's one of those kid with the psychic power kind of things, you know, mm. uh, that type of thing. So the 1972 biopic Ludwig uh, from director Lucino Visconti, uh, 257 minutes it clocks in at. <laughs> it's about Arrow. the uh, Mad King of Bavaria. The uh, uh, yeah. The, the uh, yes, <laughs> that's that kind of says it all. But it's yeah. sort of like a. a, a uh, I've never seen it, but I've always, you know, in reading about it, I've said this is sort of like a, a kind of like a Caligula type uh, uh, ruler, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. just uh, ruling while mad, 
which uh, is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've, heard, I've heard it's actually quite beautiful in terms of costumes and sets and stuff, so. Yeah, uh, the Blu-ray is also Arrow Academy, who also issued uh, Cinema Paradiso that we just talked about. Uh, this is another one of their releases, and it has an interesting, uh, it has two viewing options. It has the full-length theatrical cut, and this is the cut that uh, Visconti preferred again. Uh, or you can watch it uh, as five individual parts, like a TV show, I guess. Mm. So you can you can watch it either way. And there's an hour-long documentary on Visconti in here. Uh, on was this. it done so, as a TV thing first, or not sure for I'm European really, television? I'm not really sure. I'm I, I'm really I don't I don't really know about that. Um, but okay. uh, I know Bert Bert Lancaster is in the cast, I believe. Um, and Trevor Howard and Gert Frobe. Okay. Uh, Romy Schneider. Ooh. So. Gert Frobe. Yeah, Gert Frobe. Can we do a movie with Gert Frobe tribute? <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> I want to see a movie with Gert Frobe, Horst Buckholtz, <laughs> and John Banner. Hardy Kruger. <laughs> and uh, uh, oh, don't forget, don't forget uh, Marjo Gortner. Yeah, <laughs> and Marjo Gortner. <laughs> and Max <laughs> Mary Michelle. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, by the way, I stand corrected. Burt Lancaster's not in Ludwig. He just uh, he's on the documentary. So there we go. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so uh, Criterion is issuing a couple of the uh, Jacques Demy films that were previously only in a box set of his work. Uh, Umbrella, Umbrellas of Schurberg and The Young Girls of Rochefort uh, are getting separate re- releases for anybody who wants them but doesn't want to buy the Demi box that came out a couple of years ago. So Now, I bet uh, those will sell. Yeah, those probably will, so. Uh, I bought big. the box a couple of years ago, so I don't need them, but um, they, they're really pretty spectacular, the transfers on them, I can tell you that. Uh, and if you don't have them, I would say they are certainly worth it. So, uh, and then we have from Wellgo USA, we have the Phantasm Collection, a oh, six, <laughs> six disc uh, featuring a uh, 120 page book featuring exclusive interviews and behind the scenes photos, <coughs> um, all kinds of supplements, deleted scenes, and documentaries. And just, uh, I guess, if you're a Phantasm fan, this is the entire enchilada. So, what's the what's the I hear, I hear it's a great looking package. It's like eighty dollars. I hear it's a okay. great looking yeah. uh, package. I had a I had a friend that bought one because he's obsessed with Phantasm and mm-hmm. and this recent um, it includes that recent restoration that was done on the original film. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, he said you know details that he'd never noticed before came came to the forefront. He's a huge like Don Coscarelli fan, which I guess mm. there are quite a few out there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, there's uh they are. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and it's uh it's on sale right now at some places for 59.99. I've seen it online. You could just do some research and find it. So it's a, you can get a little cheaper. It right almost now. feels like it'd be worth it just to get the book, you know. I mean, yeah. I really only really like uh, you know, I I I sort of you know, I, I really only like the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is honest. the best I mean, one. I mean, that <laughs> is the, by far the best. 
I, yeah. And I consider that first movie to still be one of the ten great uh, horror movies, uh, American horror movies. Let's put it that way, at least. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I, I think it's pretty obvious that it is, uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's it's so inventive and uh, and. Uh, I, I really, really didn't need any of the sequels, you know. Uh, I, I like it just the way it is, you know, just being a dream movie. And uh, but it's masterful, and uh, and I'm glad that he made a career, uh, you know, supplemented his career with doing some of the other movies as well. So mm-hmm. to keep him going through the leading times. But uh, uh, I'd like to see the book. I'd be very interested in seeing that. Yeah, it's if you're a Phantasm fan, I'd say it's uh it's an it's a necessity. Uh and one other uh, how, do, how do they fit a, how do they fit a book in that? Uh that's a good question. <laughs> that's a very good question. I I mean I've I've seen it. I mean I've held the I've held the case. Mhm. I'm like what what kind of book would that would be in that thing? I mean it's the size uh, of a DVD. It's just, you know, wider mm-hmm. or you know, Yeah. Huh. It, it's true. Uh, I, I, I've, it, it's, it is the standard size, so I don't know what that would be like, but, uh, does it, does it come with a, uh, does it, it doesn't come with a, uh, with a special commemorative, uh, silver ball, does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking, no. looking around, like I was, I was looking around at Best Buy the other day and, and I was cracking up at some of the special packaging, you know, like the bells and whistles packaging to get people to buy it. Like the Fast and the Furious box set has a. Speedometer on the front of it that lights up when you press it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the uh, the uh, blade. I saw a Blade Runner. Um, it wasn't really a box set, but it was definitely. Uh, it was. It came with a. Uh, it came with a little diecast uh, flying car thing. You know, mm. I was like, "Wow, that that's kind of cool. That <laughs> might actually get me to buy that thing." You know, I mean, I'm not really a toy collector or anything like that but there was just something about it i was like neat they should have put these out you know oh yeah uh but i would definitely if i ever saw like a uh flying ball with the it has to have the drill and the two and the two hooks coming out of it if i ever saw that for sale i would definitely buy that (laughs) (laughs) yeah the box set of uh the box set of boogie nights comes comes with a pop-up book. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Oh, well, moving along, one other catalog title from that same day, April 11th, uh, would be the 1996 version of The Crucible with Daniel Day-Lewis, Winona Ryder, and Paul Schofield. That's a good um, movie. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's that a really is, good that movie. That is a good movie. I agree. Um, yeah, it's like Nicholas Heinter or something, or... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. who came oh. from? I guess he came from. Well, I remember he did the Nicholas Nickleby or something on on Broadway and in in London. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, he he's good. Yeah. So uh, so there's that, and uh, also from Kino, this is moving along to April 18th, The Scar, starring Paul Henreid and uh, Joan Bennett. From huh. uh, for, 1948. Okay, um, it's one of their one of the older titles there. Um, and on that same day, here's a couple of interesting titles. Uh, 
the night Evelyn came out of the grave, also from uh, yeah. this one's from Arrow Video. So, <laughs> don't know if I remember uh, seeing this title when I was uh, a kid, and it just sounded like something I'd want to see because I was a horror movie fan when I was a kid. And, and as I've got, I never did see it, and as I've gotten older, its reputation is not good. So now I'm not sure I want to see it. But <laughs> yeah, they, just, they just issued the uh, the soundtrack for that on LP too. It reminds wow. me, you know, the um, it reminds me of those horror titles like uh, "Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things," <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. Let's scare Jessica <laughs> to death. Oh yeah. yes, the creature feature kind of stuff that you'd see in the '80s or something. Yeah, let's scare <laughs> Jessica. You know, it's funny. The 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 night Evelyn came out of the grave uh, is something that strikes me. It seems like I saw tons of commercials for it back in the yeah. 70s for some reason, or or even previews, maybe maybe trailers, but I never saw the actual movie. <laughs> it, yeah, there were uh, there were a lot of trailers for it uh, out there, and I, I used to read about it in books when I was a kid too. too so that was another thing. But uh, yeah, so another Warner Archive release would be uh, The Rounders. From uh, 1965, directed by Burt Kennedy and starring Glenn Ford and Henry Fonda. Mm. And uh, it's a little bit of a Western. Mm. Not to be confused so, with the Matt Damon movie. No, no. De- different round. By the way, for sure. I, I got I to gotta say, say this about the Matt Damon movie. I was watching this interview. It's on YouTube with Matt Damon, and he was talking about rounders. And it was the greatest story. Everybody was excited about John Malkovich coming to set. Uh, they were so thrilled that they got him in the movie, and everybody revered him. And so he shows up for the first day, and it's the and it's the uh, uh, the poker scene probably. And so they're all sitting around and they're waiting for his first take. And he starts the take, and John Malkovich is normal. And then they say action, and John Malkovich is like, "If you don't give me my money," like he's like really over the top. Uh huh. And. Uh, and the take ends, and everybody starts applauding. Meanwhile, Matt Damon's like, "What? What is he doing?" And Malkovich <laughs> sees that Matt Damon's looking at him like that, and and Malkovich leans in and he says, "You know, I'm really a terrible actor." <laughs> and, and, and and what that anecdote shows is that he's Malkovich, so he's surrounded by sycophants. So mm-hmm. and and it's a process to get the groove get get the part right to get into the groove of it and so even when he's not doing it right or well nobody will tell him right uh you know it's so and and Matt Damon thought it was so such a sweet thing for him to admit when he leaned over and told him that it was a mm. great story that that wow. actually is a really great story um wow mm-hmm. Really is. I yeah. don't remember that movie that well. I love I'm that not movie. a poker I guy. That. Like I, I find you know card games to be inscrutable. So movies about card games usually fail on me. Like even something like Cincinnati Kid or uh, you know whatever. That's it, my least favorite. I like Rounders. I'm not the Cincinnati Kid. After everyone told me for years what a great movie it was, I find, I remember watching it and I was just like, ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's that's one of the least great uh, Steve McQueen movies, but uh, yeah. Anyway, the Rounders for me is like a great movie to watch any 
you know, in the middle of the night, if it's on Cinemax, I'll sit and watch some of it. Like it's yeah, a, yeah, no, it's a, like a comfortable, his name is Worm. comfortable Worm. Worm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, All right, Adam, uh, sorry. Air, oh, no problem. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. I love it. We're, uh, that was a good digression. <laughs> We've totally good. forgotten about the rounders, the Vert Kennedy yeah. movie. That's my fault. Which I've never yeah. seen. It's, it's, uh, I think it's like one of these, uh, one of those sort of Western comedies that that, that were yeah, popular in the 60s. Uh, yeah. That, that I think kind of helped kill the Western. <laughs> but, you know, like some of those. Yeah. John Wayne movies that were almost just as much of a comedy as they were a western. I thought mm-hmm. I think those those you know ruined the genre. Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that. I can't, uh, but you got to give it to them though. A, a good casting, of course, Glenn Ford and Peter Fonda. That's a uh, that's a duo oh, you don't Henry normally Fonda, see. You mean. <laughs> oh, was it Henry Fonda? Yeah, that's right. It is. It just says Fonda and Ford on the front of it. And it looks like, uh, but yeah, it is Henry Fonda. You're right. I'm looking at the cast now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. would have been interesting, Peter Fonda. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Peter Fonda and Glenn Ford. Uh, so, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times from 1972, starring Sybil Danning and Barbara Boucher. It's a, one of those Italian mystery horror thrillers in the vein of um, uh, of, of the bird with the crystal plumage and things of that nature, like the Dario Argento stuff. And when they were people were jumping on that band, the filmmakers were jumping on that bandwagon. I've not seen it, uh, so can't really give her a... A critical analysis, but I'm not uh, a huge Arrow. I'm not a huge fan of those Giallo movies. I just you know yeah I I know there's some people at, at Kim's video up in New York when I was working there we had the biggest uh, collection of Giallo movies and there were there was a very devoted group of people that would come in and rent nothing but those movies mm-hmm. and uh, I would always try and ponder the <laughs> ponder the 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 cinematic uh, the mind of a cinematic fan that just watched giallo movies it, it just seemed uh <laughs> infathomable to me uh but uh i think people sort of imprint on that kind of that kind of filmmaking with the zooms and the and of course the gore and uh right uh, right and the sort of the kind of unique kind of paranoia that's in them uh that uh you know i think they just imprint on those kind of things yeah, but anyway, it's uh well uh, yeah I I have to admit I've never seen any of his stuff, but although I'm aware of him, so uh, but the Mephisto Waltz, um, which was um, that was from 1971, a pre-Mash Alan Alda, of course, and uh, it was uh one of the rare theatrical films produced by Quinn Martin, who's better known for his television work. And I actually think that's a pretty good thriller. It's about a pianist who sells his soul to the devil, basically. And uh, it uh, uh, has a good performance also. There's Jacqueline Bissett's in there, and uh, there's uh, Bradford Dillman, William Wyndham, Barbara Parkins. So, uh, yeah. I've got that no, to uh, review. No Gert Frobe. <laughs> no, no Gert Frobe. No Gert Frobe, but... Uh, I've got that uh, copy of this to review for Zeke Films. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, oh, it's got uh, it does have Kurt Kurt Jurgens. Kurt Jurgens, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's almost Kurt Frobe, but not really. And, Wait, uh, who is it? Kurt, Kurt Jurgens or 
Kurt, Kurt Jurgens, yeah. Yes. Well, you got got Bond villain. I mean, so I mean, so one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Pamela Ferdin is in it. I always like those early seventies mm-hmm. movies that Pamela Ferdin is in. You know, this she had she was one of the early uh, she's a kid actress at this point. And was one of the early voices for uh, Lucy, I think, on the um, on the uh, Charlie Brown specials. Oh. And I, whenever I would see her in movies, like she's she's the little kid that discovers uh, Clint Eastwood at the beginning of uh, the Beguiled, you know. Oh yeah. Ah. And she has a very very unique voice. She uh, does. Yeah. When you hear her talk, all you can think of is the peanuts. <laughs> the peanuts right, movie. right, right. But she was she was actually kind of a, kind of a mainstay during that period of uh, you know kind of a a child character actress in a way. Um, and so I'm always just interested to see her in, in movies from that period. But yeah, uh, I'm looking forward the, uh... to it. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. I think you'll enjoy it. But she also did the voice of uh, Fern in Charlotte's Web, I believe. That's right. Served me correct. <laughs> that's so, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and I know that's, we're the only people talking about this at this in the world. I realize that. I realize. That. I get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, um, Woman of the Year is a Criterion release. This is the classic uh, Hepburn Tracy, you know. It's when they the first met, I guess. Yeah. The definitive yeah. one. I mean, one of the definitive ones, along with Adam's mm-hmm. rib, I'd say. But oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Y- yes, that's uh, you know, <laughs> um, that was 1942, and um, is that so one anyway, of the ones that was written by uh, Ruth Gordon and? I believe so. I don't have the writing credits right in front of me at the moment, but I do I think, think that's it was. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it was Michael Caden, so no, it wasn't Ring Ring Lardner Jr. Though. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, we have a 25th anniversary edition of A League of Their Own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yucko. Yeah. Did, you guys that like that movie? A, that was a big uh, uh, turning point. Turning point for Tom Hanks, wasn't it? It I mean, was. That was yeah. yeah, he's really good. That movie, and I, I still laugh at the at thinking about the line where he turns to the bus driver. He's like, "I loved you in Wizard of Oz." Or, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a visual thing, but it's hysterical. Oh man. Yeah, that's, I uh, remember thinking, uh, uh, thinking the only thing I, re- I mean, I thought Hanks was good in it, but uh, the funniest person in the movie was John Lovitz as the as this scout or something. Yes. Was he? That's he was hilarious in it. That, that's the line I, I use. That line that John Lovitz has in that movie all the time. Uh, when I'm trying to prove a point or something, or I'm trying to get somebody to do something, I always say John Lovitz's line where he goes. See how it works is the train moves, not the station. And that, that's from uh, that's from League of Their Own. That's hysterical. Oh man. Well, uh, so another criterion that came out the same day was the Buena Vista Social Club. So oh, that's a good music, one. Yeah, you know, music documentary. 
And Arrow Video also released the Donnie Darko Special Edition. Uh, I'm not sure how many times Donnie Darko's been released at this point, but quite a few, I'd say. Um, that, but, you know, a lot of that, that that goes with a lot of these. But again, to go back to the director's cut, this is one of the worst <laughs> examples of yeah, a director's I mean, cut. Yeah, I agree. They put out all basically it's all the cut, deleted scenes from the original DVD inserted into the and movie, and the music work. has changed. Yeah, the music has changed, so we don't get that great opening. Whatever you do, don't change the song that opens the movie. Whatever yeah. you do, because yeah. if your movie becomes a, uh, a success, <clears throat> that's probably one of the reasons. <laughs> you know, when that movie, the original version, opens up with Donnie driving his uh, bike. Through the uh, through the mountain or whatever, and uh, the Killing Moon comes up by Echo yeah. and the Bunnymen. Yeah, you know that's very that is extremely memorable, <laughs> and uh, and it's changed. I mean, it's like I, I just don't don't go in there and frame fuck your movies. Uh, that have made you a success. Uh, it's just uh, it's wrong. And I know he wanted another song, and but that song and, and uh, you know that particular scene really helps set the mood. And uh, and if you change it, you know people. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if fans of Donnie Darko. I don't know if they've have come out against this or whatever. No, but. no, it's the movie. The director's cut when it came out. I think it was like 2004, 2005. Um, or even 2003, for that matter. I mean, everyone was just like basically because when you look at a film, it says you took the deleted scenes from the movie and just inserted them in. There was no, there was no reason there was no reason to touch this movie, and yeah. that movie was fine when it came out. It and was, I think it's like Richard Kelly taking a, a cue from George Lucas, almost who he obviously admires, and, 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 and I mean that in a good way. But like you know, you, you don't know when to leave well enough alone, and it, it just it. It hurts the movie. Um, I'm sorry. It just hurts and unfortunately, it. this is the version that people are going to see <laughs> because it's. I mean, they're they're going to think that this is the one that they should get, the director's cut, and uh, it just it just drives me insane. So so now it's it's probably harder to find the real one. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, I think I I still have a, a copy of it. I but, think I might uh, have it somewhere. I'm, I think I'm not sure. But Dean, uh, yeah. tell me. Dean, tell me. Do you prefer uh, the original release of Apocalypse Now over the Redux? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Even yeah. though, even though, I would say this: the most interesting part of Redux is is the French plantation scene, and I and I kind of do wish that was in the uh, uh, original. Movie, I do wish, sort of wish that was in there because I think. Do you it, prefer? Do you prefer Blade Runner with narration? Uh, n- uh, no, <laughs> I like that. I actually I, that's, do. I, that's a director's cut that I like, and I also I like, like the director's cut, but I yeah. like the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner. I have no problem with that movie. I don't. Um, I, I don't do. like the narration. I mean, you know, even even. Uh, uh, Harrison Ford says that he did the narration badly in order because he didn't believe in it, and uh, so I, I, you know, that's that's one reason not to prefer that version. But 
Uh, no, I, I like the I like the director's cut of that, and I really love the director's cut of uh, of THX one one three eight, which I think does does improve that movie. But uh, but the director's cuts that actually improve the movie are pretty are relatively rare. Uh, I just well, let me the last question. <laughs> yeah, the last question. Do you prefer the fifth? Director's cut of Alexander over the fourth. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, I just can't. wish I. I wish I've I could al- forget about Alexander altogether. I mean, <laughs> I've only seen it once. So I've never done any comparative any comparative research. Uh, but I did watch the director's cut of that because I thought, well, finally I'll sit and watch it. I guess uh, it's, it's a movie that left me. It didn't leave me with any kind of anything really. But. Um, uh, Oh God! I was going to say another director's cut that I, I, I that just drives me crazy. Oh, uh, uh, The Exorcist. You know, yeah, which is I was not a director's cut. Not, it's not a director's cut. It's a it's a producer's cut. But uh, that's another one that, like, if we still had video stores, uh, that that version would replace the old one. You know, and and that would be the only one you could see. You couldn't see the original uh, yeah. Exorcist anymore. Uh, so uh, of course that's over now, but uh, um, you know they're very rare when they work. I think. I think you're right. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, so okay, a couple other things here. We got um, the Twilight Time title, so we'll get into those real fast. Uh, they all came out on April 18th, and there were only four releases, but I think they're pretty rich as far as uh, the ones they decided to issue. Uh, one of them is Another Woman, Woody mm-hmm. Allen. It's probably his shortest film, but uh, you know, Really? It's his Mar- shortest film? Shorter than, it's, sh- shorter than Zelig? I think Zelig's only like 70, 75 minutes long or something. Uh, this is one of the shortest ones. Probably okay. not the shortest, but it's 81 minutes, so it's close. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's very Ingmar Bergman like, as we know. I always and liked also, it. Uh, that was that was always yeah. that was always in my top ten Woody Allen's. Oh, They're really? Closer to ten than to number one, but that's one I've always liked. I agree. I agree. It's good. It is and good. I re- I, yeah, I revisited it this past week uh, when I got the review discs, and it still holds up. And. Uh, I think, you know, something I did not realize, I just found out last week, is that he does not, uh, contractually, he has an agreement with these uh, studios that are issuing his product that they cannot put out any supplementary materials on his D- movie uh, home video releases, which I, that's why none of them turn up, because he doesn't want them and has that agreement. In the uh, so I, I didn't know that, but uh, uh, this one uh, only has the isolated music track and the theatrical trailer, which would fit into that um, pattern. I guess that we've he seen. probably doesn't want to be hounded by people wanting to do interviews with him about, uh, or, or interviews with his cast about his working process or anything. Yeah, because he he doesn't like doing that stuff. He doesn't like to look back. He's he's more of a you know doesn't like to to think about things he's done in the past. I don't believe, and I think he's he doesn't you know, even watch his movies. So, no, I mean, I, no. I, I don't. I don't know if that. I that's probably usual for directors. I would think that yeah. directors don't watch, don't ever go back and revisit their mm-hmm. old movies until long until they're long past. Maybe maybe they'll see them on TV or something. But uh, yeah. but yeah. 
Who can blame so, it? Yeah, that's so. That's but that's out there along with a couple other uh, Twilight Time titles. They issued uh, "You'll Never Get Rich" uh, with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth. Okay, uh, that's from 1941. Um, How to Steal a Million with. Uh, Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. Great Featured movie. A, yeah, Great movie. it is. Features is a it? very early score by John Williams as well. Oh, uh, that's, that's, and, that's neat. Yeah, and it's isolated on a separate uh, audio track. Is that like uh, a comedy? Is it a yes. is, mm-hmm. is it a straight heist movie, or is it a comedy, or what is it? Comedy. It's a, it's a heist movie, but it's a comedy. I mean, it's, I, I guess you could say it's in that same... Um, Adam, would it be in the same um, time period as the Hot Rock? That yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a couple years time. prior, but 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 same same wheelhouse. It, it was a couple of years before that, but, but, but you know similar. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, and Oddly enough, the bill- it's odd because uh, I heard that Woody Allen does all the supplementary stuff on How to Steal a Million. It's odd <laughs> that he won't he won't let anybody touch his, but he'll do all the supplementary <laughs> stuff on everyone else's. <laughs> Well, he does turn up in that uh, that that documentary, the Kubrick documentary film, uh, Kubrick: A Life in Pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, he's professing his love for 2001. So uh, yeah. Uh, the other Twilight Time <laughs> release. <laughs> I just, I'm just, I'm just picturing uh, if Woody Allen attempted to make something like 2001. I guess the closest he's come is like Sleeper. But uh, for, for somebody like that to talk about uh, Kubrick, you know, I love Woody Allen and Kubrick loved. You know why he's in that movie? I, I bet they asked him because Kubrick really did really liked Woody Allen, and he originally wanted to cast Woody Allen in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, he went through a, a string of com- comic actors, Woody Allen and Steve Martin and a couple of others, before he settled on Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. So they did have a relationship, the two of them. I wonder why he... Why he could you imagine Eyes Wide Shut with Woody Allen in it? Oh, that That's would be interesting. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine Eyes Wide Shut with Steve Martin, though. I can see uh, that. I can see it. Yeah. I mean, see I mean something, watch, something like, watch something like Shop Girl or something, and you might see some glimmers of stuff like that. Um, uh, the romantic, the adult, you know, romantic, non-gooey Steve Martin. But because uh, I love Shop Girl, actually, but Shop Girl is good. It's underrated. But uh, uh, I always think of you know Pennies from Heaven as being like something mm-hmm. that could uh, be a signpost towards towards that. But anyway, yeah, interesting. Well, the other Twilight Time release is a Billy Wilder film and an Oscar winner to boot, and it is The Fortune Cookie, featuring oh. the Oscar-winning mm-hmm. performance, yeah, Walter Matthau's Oscar-winning performance. Uh, this is the film where he suffered a heart attack midway through production, and uh, the latter part of the film, uh, he's much uh, thinner than he is in the first half of the film because of his uh, <laughs> because of his heart attack and, and the surgery and all of that, so uh, it's... That's that's a movie faux pas that's been noted for years in these movie gaff books and things. But I wonder oh. if the the fact that he suffered the heart attack was one of the reasons that he won the Oscar that year. Uh, could be, could be. You know, like a sympathy vote kind of thing. 
Um, yeah. What was that? Sixty-five. Uh, sixty-six. Actually, okay. 19, yeah, 66. So this was when Billy Wilder's career uh, was. If, yeah, if you can't get a hold of the fortune, the fortune cookie, then I recommend two movies to make up for it. Watch Mike Nichols' The Fortune, and then watch uh, Su- uh, Susan Seidelman's Cookie. There uh, you go. When you <laughs> watch the two of those. I mean, that's that's more than a double bill. <laughs> I would say the fortune cookie was probably his his last major success, wouldn't you guys say that? Because he, after that, he I mean he made some good films, but they really didn't generate a lot of box office dollars uh, financially. I think they all failed, uh, like the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and uh, Avanti and uh, the remake of uh, the Front Page, and he just didn't you know nothing he did really caught fire and I. Some of those movies are really shamefully neglected, like or were in their day. They've kind of been reappraised. Like *Private Life of Sherlock Holmes*, I think is damn near a masterpiece, as is *Avanti*. But uh, you know, this was probably the last major, major success he had from a financial standpoint. *The Fortune Cookie*. So, mm. yeah. Anyway, um, is that also that's also the beginning of the Jack Lemmon? Walter Matthau pairing, is that right? That was I the mean, first one. It was the first one, yeah. Yeah. So the first time they ever appeared on screen together, and we all know uh, how many, you know, that that was a recurring thing from there on out. So I, I like Walter Matthau in that movie, but I would have given supporting actor that year to Robert Shaw for A Man for All Seasons. I agree. Or, or, or even Eli Wallach for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, yeah, true, very true. Uh, but another release that, uh, that came out that day was um, the uh, 1963 film uh, from the writer and creator of The Waltons. That would be Earl Hamner, of course, uh, Spencer's Mountain, starring, again, Henry Fonda, and this time Maria O'Hara and James MacArthur and Donald Crisp and Wally Cox. Um, and this was kind of a, some of the same themes are, were recycled for... Uh, the, the Walton's television show years later. So this is but, kind uh, of the dry run for that, huh? It is, yeah. And, okay. Uh, directed, actually, it's based on the novel by Earl Hamner, but written and directed by uh, Delmer Davies for the film. So, yeah, there you go. And so uh, that uh, was, there was Broken Arrow from Kino. That's another one, not uh, the John Travolta, the 1950 with James Stewart and Jeff Chandler and Deborah Paget. Oh, that's really good. That's yeah, good that's movie. A, and the 1957, A Farewell to Arms with Rock Hudson, Jennifer Jones, and Vittoria De Sica in a, one of the rare um, acting roles that he you didn't normally see him turning up as an actor, but he does there. Um, I think he got nominated for an Oscar for a supporting uh, actor Oscar for that. Uh, yeah, I believe so. I do. And we'll move along to April 25th. We're closing in here on the uh, last releases of the month. Uh, of course, uh, Criterion's uh, release of Rumblefish debuted on that day, the Coppola film, which is a uh, has, I guess, as many um, – Fans as detractors kind of split people right down the middle. I think I have to say, you know, that is a. I I really want to revisit it. I I particularly want to uh, see this uh, Criterion release of it because I, although I do think it's problematic, it's a little over the top. 
a lot of a lot of the time. But it's got such an amazing cast. And uh it and, does. and then that brilliant black and white photography and of course my choice for one of the greatest scores ever ever recorded by uh uh Stuart Copeland. Mhm. And a really terrific song too from him and uh and what's the Mexican radio guy's name? <laughs> I can't even remember, I can't remember now. Wall of Voodoo, that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Wall guy, of Voodoo, but, that's right. Yeah, but uh uh Don't Box Me In is the name of the song and it's it's mm-hmm. really terrific. It's a really, really great score and uh I'd I'd love to get a copy of it again. I think I still have my the original what movie is this? I had for Rumblefish. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, gotta remember. There, I read a great essay about this in the Outsiders. How it was like this is like Coppola's The Outsiders was his Godfather for kids, and Rumblefish was Apocalypse Now for like teens, basically. <laughs> that was the best. That was the best description I've ever read of both both of these films. Um, but I mean, you, wasn't wasn't you, it also the start of him doing the? Um, on set editing, where he had it in a like a nearby bus, where he had his. That, I thought that was a bus. one from the heart, actually. I thought that was, was one from the heart. Yeah, it was one from the heart that uh, kind of started that. But he he definitely yeah. kept up with that. But uh, also one of the great uh, trailers of all time, uh, uh, which just, I mean, when you have a trailer that you know lists the cast that's in this movie, you know. Uh, just everybody from Matt Dillon to uh, Mickey Rourke, Diane mm-hmm. Lane, to Dennis Hopper, Tom Waits, Dick, Nicholas Cage, mm-hmm. Vincent Spano, uh, uh, Diane Scarwid. Uh, so so many really great people in this movie. It's just, uh, it's got to be seen again. <laughs> I got to watch it again. So. Yeah, it's uh I saw. I watched it again when I got the Criterion, and uh, I my I feel the same way about it. Pretty much, I I feel like it's uh, from a technical perspective, it is incredible. I mean, the cinematography by Stephen Burham, who worked with uh, De Palma on a lot of his films, including um, Scarface, of course, uh, and many others. It is. Um, it's really really just uh, something to behold. Uh, but the story is just so. Thin. It's like he's there's not much there, and it's like he, he's he, he's putting so much into the technical stuff for, and, and you just wish it was a better a story that uh, was deserving of the technical treatment that this one deserve that this uh-huh. one gets, if that makes any sense. Uh, but it's not a bad film. It is, uh, like I said, technically it's something to really see. So if you want to see it from that perspective, I would just tell people don't expect so much from the story. But uh, from from the uh, craftsmanship uh, end of things, it's definitely worth uh, checking out. So yeah, for sure. So uh, and Tampopo was another uh, Criterion uh, release from that same day, the Japanese film from 1985 about the tale of an eccentric band of culinary ronin who guide the widow of a noodle shop owner on her quest for the perfect recipe. And uh, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's more like a series of vignettes than anything else, and some of them are mildly interesting, some of them not, but uh, kind of a mixed bag for me, but um, I had never seen it, and so there it is. But It's, it's kind of a anybody. cult movie. I remember, I remember Cisco Niebert loving it, uh, and yeah. 
And I think I've seen parts of it, but I've never seen yeah. the whole thing all the way through. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's, it's necessarily for me. <laughs> no, it's not the greatest silly. thing. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a little too slight for my my tastes. But uh, I was curious. I'd never caught up with it. And uh, the Wheeler Dealers from 1963, and that's another James Garner. This is from Warner Archive, directed by Arthur Hiller, who we lost last mm. year. And uh, this is uh, based on a novel um, by um, it's. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of. I losing my. I lost my place here. <laughs> Sorry about that. But <laughs> anyway, it's 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 the wealth. You know, the guy has a lot of money, and he's uh, he's trying to. He, uh, he's, try, he's getting a, another um, get rich quick scheme, and involving Lee Rimmick involved in, in getting her involved in his latest. And uh, this was when she was probably at the top of her game as well. And it's got John Aston and uh, Jim Backus is in it, and Chill Wills, the uh, voice oh, no, of Francis Will. the Talking Mule, of course. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. It's, it's got a lot of comedy people in it. Pat Harrington, it does. Uh, Bill Harris Louis, too. Louis Nye, Jim Backus. Yeah, so Howard anyway. McNear, that's uh, uh, Floyd the Barber. Floyd the Barber, from... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, but he's I would, another one. I would watch that just to see Lee Rimmick, who I just uh, was completely adorable in in that oh, yeah. era. So, actually, I always thought she was beautiful. Like she died very young, but uh, I she thought, did. but um, yes, she did. Mm-hmm. But uh, I always thought that she was gorgeous. All the way to, I think the last movie I remember seeing her in was the competition. But uh, uh, you know, uh, Anatomy of a Murder and uh, Face of the Crowd uh, era, mm-hmm. Lee Rimmick, and of course Day of Days of Wine and Roses. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> she's uh, she's stunning. Yeah, true, <coughs> true. Yeah, she died the same uh, day as Michael Landon, if memory serves. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've... A uh, couple of uh, releases here from Olive Films. Uh, Ophelia, which is the 1962 reworking of Shakespeare's Hamlet, directed by Claude Chabrol. And we also have a collection of short films, uh, the Wal- Walerian Borosik short yes. films collection. <laughs> and I, I know you've seen some of those, Dean. I haven't gotten around to looking at them, so you might want to talk a little bit about them for you a can, moment. You uh, can. I've I've seen them. You know, uh, some of his animated shorts, uh, mm-hmm. which are very abstract but are fascinating to watch. Uh, um, you can see some of them on on YouTube. That's how I watch them. But uh, I'd be interested in seeing seeing more of his stuff. I mean. I think you have to have a, a particular taste for this kind of thing, but uh, but I enjoy things like Stan Brackage and uh, uh, experimental works like John John. Um, <coughs> I'm trying to think of the computer guy that did all the early computer stuff. I can't think of his last name, but uh, things like Catalog and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I I enjoy experimental works. Uh, and uh, and uh, his his hit a particular kind of uh, unusual quality. Uh, that's, I, I can't even put him into words, but he's a he's a Polish filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen like if you've ever seen Polish, uh, here's a good way 
for you, for movie fans to understand what he's like. If you've ever seen like a Polish movie poster for anything, like The Sting or something like that, and then you look at it and and it's like the most unusual uh, artistic yeah. rendering <laughs> of a, you know your average movie used for this movie poster, then you understand where this filmmaker is kind of coming from. And uh, if you want to see sort of like an animated Polish movie poster, this is the, this is, this is the filmmaker for you. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I highly recommend them, uh, even though I can't pronounce his name very well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I probably blundered it myself. Uh, but I Valerian Borochik probably... But maybe, maybe not. Yeah. What does, uh, uh, what does a Polish What does a Polish man give his wife on their wedding night? That's long and hard. A last name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. <laughs> good. Very good. Uh, this, uh, but this disc, uh, the shorts on here uh, were made between 1959 to 84, and they're two hours and 25 minutes worth of them. So uh, I think you get your money's worth. I would say. Mm. But um, anyway, the, so there's a True Grit two movie collection. Paramount is issuing both of the True Grit movies back to back as one set. Uh, the Coen Brothers and the original one with uh, Glenn Campbell and uh, John Wayne, of course. And then we have uh, those daring young men and their jaunty jalopies from Kino. That's another one of their uh, now. What is that? Is that related at all to? Those ma- magnificent men in their flying machines, or is that? I always wondered. I always what was wondered. Go- what was going on in that era? There was some kind of fascination with, um, with uh, you know, in the mid '60s, with the turn of the century kind of comedies like uh, the Great Race, or, or uh, mm-hmm. was another one. You know, uh, was this? This is all just uh, you know, some kind of. I, the Great Race was a huge hit, so was this just a way to try and resurrect that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, the Great Race is the only one of those I've actually seen. I've seen it multiple times, but I haven't seen either any of these other ones, although I am familiar with them, uh, their titles and, and when they were made and all that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, different studios for sure, because uh, Great Race was Warner Brothers, and these others were, that you're talking about were MGM United Artists uh, affairs. So yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, the war- yeah, and uh, Gert Froth is in it though. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He really, oh, wow. <laughs> he really is in it. Lots of uh, oh. Dudley Moore and uh, Cody and Peter Cook and Tony Curtis uh, are yeah. also in there. So. For those of you playing the home game, if we mention (laughs) Gert Frobe one more time, uh, someone will go home with a microwave oven. uh, (laughs) Keep keep tuned. An official Gert Frobe uh, microwave oven, like, you know, it's got his stamp on it and everything. (laughs) Every time you're cooking a lasagna in it, you'll be thinking of Gert Frobe. (laughs) It even comes out of the microwave smelling like Gert Frobe. Yeah, all your your food has an orange tinge to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, so, 
we also have the world's most beautiful swindlers from all of films, which is uh, kind of a combination of short films from um, French New Wave directors, uh, Chabral and Jean-Luc Godard and Gregoretti and uh, Hurakawa. They all contributed to this one, and uh, all of films put that one out. Uh, we were talking about Jacques Demy earlier. There was The Pied Piper, uh, Jacques Demy's 1972 musical version of the story of The Pied Piper with uh, Keith Buckley. Wow, and, uh, geez, I didn't even know that existed. That's interesting. Yeah, and I've heard it's a very dark take on that tale as well. I've heard it's, it's I've all, I have a copy of it, but I've never never <laughs> taken the time to watch it. Mm. Uh, and uh, Peter Sellers' 1973 film, The Optimists, uh, is being issued by Kino. Wow, and um, that's uh, that was kind of at his low point, I think. Isn't that ironic that at his low point he does a movie called The Optimist? He did That's so true. many movies though that are lost to the ages. Like it, really, a lot of a lot of not very great movies. And then some of these films should yeah. be remain lost. I mean, uh huh. I mean, tonight, Adam, you really picked some real dogs. I mean, <laughs> no offense yeah. to the canine population, but I mean. <laughs> You're right, I mean, but I think – I was going to say I think that's why it's great that, as I told you guys one other time, I, I think it's great because so many of these films have been languishing in vaults, maybe for good reason, but the studios now are not interested in these things anymore, and so they're just licensing them out in bulk to these yeah. uh, boutique labels that are just putting them out there. And there's so many things that I've seen released on in high definition that I didn't think I would see it on home video, much less high definition. So mm. it's pretty amazing when you some of the stuff that's, that is coming down the pike. I'm const- consistently amazed. And here's another one from 1996, uh, Microcosmos, this documentary. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. Well, that's, yeah, that's it actually, is. that's a, um, I mean... That I mean, that's a pretty well-known film documentary from that yeah, time. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's it only is. we're only talking about, but that's in the 1990s. So I mean, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. But it, it's good. I mean, it's a, it's. I I think it has no narration in it, if I remember correctly. That's true. That's true. And, and it's all just a very macro uh, uh, photography of uh, insects. Mm-hmm. And it really, uh, mm-hmm. it's really, yeah. really good. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like it's, it's the insect Koyana Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like it's uh, really. I mean, why, why would you have narration? Because what what can you really say over footage of two grasshoppers fucking? I mean, it's not. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, yeah, the, that's true. The Hellstrom Chronicle did the same thing, but it, it did have narration. But uh, I was gonna say, I I was gonna say, I seem to remember the Hellstrom Chronicle having narration. It did. It did. And that yeah. that also won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Film over uh, the Sorrow and the Pity, which a lot of people uh, <laughs> a lot of people still complain about that. Right, right. Oh God. <laughs> oh my God. That that is. That's it a, really did. That's egregious. That's, oh, that is that that is a sorrow and a pity for sure. It is. It is. What a but pity. People, that's you know that that comes up occasionally. Somebody will say, "Well, they gave the Hellstrom Chronicle best documentary feature over the sorrow and the pity." So what can you say? But, uh, well, anyway, at least uh, it meant that uh, I, I seem to remember that that was done by Waylon Green, who was one of the writers of uh, 
the wild bunch. The wild bunch. Yeah, you're right. For, it was. So. You're you're right. And he also that's, wrote Sorcerer, of course. Uh huh. So that's yeah. the upside. Waylon Green got an Oscar. Uh, true, true. Look at it that way. So Man of La Mancha, here's the second Arthur Hiller film we've talked about tonight uh, from 1972. He, and Hiller directed, and Peter O'Toole, Sophia Loren, and James Coco. What a trio. Uh, from this, <laughs> but, I, I, I've never seen it, but uh, I have a hard time imagining uh, Peter O'Toole actually being able to match Richard Kiley. Uh, oh, in yeah. singing the impossible dream, I'm just. Uh, <laughs> uh, does yeah. he talk? Have you seen it? Does he? I, I I, I've no. never seen it, but I, uh, I would imagine he probably just sort of talks things that, you know, yeah, like yeah. he just sort of to dream the impossible dream with the song playing in the background. <laughs> but, uh, that's not the way we want to see this. <laughs> well, depending on how many drinks he had the day they filmed it, he may be slurring it, actually. <laughs> they had to loop the whole thing. <laughs> That's right, they had to loop it. Do some post on that. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, let's see. Um, from Hell It Came, Warner Archive released that. That's one of those uh, allied artist films. This is the one where the creature looks like literally a giant, a, a tree walking around attacking people. Uh, they've used clips of this in so many of those movies that you know where they goof on these low budget horror films, and this is, and it it really is bad. Yeah. <laughs> are they are they have they really, restored that have they restored that and brought it back because of global warming? Does it have extra may. significance now? That's uh, that, you never know. You never know. <laughs> but uh, the, the creature's name is Tabonga. I remember that. So it's it's an atomic age cautionary tale. The cover says, but Warner Archive put that out, isn't, and so isn't there yeah. a scene in the Evil Dead where this chick gets raped by a tree? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The first one. Yeah. That's yeah. They they should re reissue that and market it as a global warming. <laughs> <laughs> Parable. Oh goodness. So uh. The 1958 film I Buried the Living uh, with Richard Boone and Theodore Bickel. That's great. Uh, 1958, yeah. So that's, uh, a, that's, that's a very good movie. What a, uh, I learned about Dream that Factor. movie from uh, Stephen King, who picks it as one of the uh, great American horror movies. Uh, yeah. And uh, I said, oh, good geez, I've never seen this one. And it is creepy. Mm-hmm. It, it's really good. It's got a very good lead performance been a long time but uh, i do remember it being pretty effective and we were talking about valerian borchek earlier go to Isle of love one of his feature films has been issued by olive and um so that's and then exterminator 2 has been issued by shout oh. factory <laughs> great exterminator 2 now it's just a this must be an action movie right Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah, the inevitable follow-up to the Exterminator. So, <laughs> <laughs> who's playing the Exterminator? Uh, wasn't it Robert Ginty? Maybe I can't remember. Kurt Frobe? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you should, uh, uh, ding 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 ding. That would actually, you uh, know what, you know what would be a great a great double feature would be Exterminator Two and Microcosmos. I think that would be <laughs> the ideal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It is Robert Ginty and Samantha Egger and Christopher George were in the original, but the second one, yeah, Robert Ginty's in both of them, yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, so we move up to the last day of the month, which was uh, April the uh, 29th. 30th. Yeah, the 30th. 29th, yeah. Uh, no, that was last week, uh, the 25th. Yeah. I guess that does cover it, actually. I'm, all I'm, right, yeah. all right. I think we just uh, we, we got them all. I thought, uh, yeah. Because I was jumping ahead, right. but I, I'm seeing Saturday Night Fever director's cut. That's not till next Tuesday, so uh, yeah. I think I'm going to go out All to right. the theater to go and see that. Yeah, I watched it the other night. I got it about a week ago. Uh, I did. I did take a peek at it on uh, Friday night. Finally got around to it, and uh, it's slightly different. Not enough that you're really going to no, detect major differences in it. Uh, but the thing about the disc is, uh, and I'll, I will say that it, it looks terrific and sounds terrific. They've really done a, quite a nice job with the restoration. So uh, it's it's only four minutes longer, by the way, than the original cut. So, okay. But uh, but it, it really does look good. I mean, it's, it's pretty spectacular. So anyway, so that's that's that. <laughs> All right, Adam. Done. Thank you, buddy. As as always, great uh, great conversation. All right. So awesome. I just want to say uh, before we leave, feud is over, and I know that we all loved the finale of feud. Yeah. <laughs> so looking for things on Sunday night to watch. You know, it's the anniversary of the L.A. riots, so they've been you – know, every channel has their own documentary about the L.A. riots. And I'm, I've watched or am watching most of them. All of them have different merits, but still, O.J. Made in America is the best documentary to see about the L.A. riots. And that's only a part of O.J. Made in mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like they're recycling Made in America in each of these documentaries. I that's say just go – I say just go and listen to that Sublime song, <laughs> April 29th, 1992. That's all you need to know. I I got to be honest because I we lived through, I think all of us lived through it. Just watching it unfold is still the best. Um, mm-hmm. And it was quite it was uh, surreal um, to watch that happen yeah. unfold. We all I think we're glued to our TVs. I um, watched that all happen. Go ahead, Adam. I was just going to say, I was at a point in my life where I was toying with the idea of moving to Los Angeles at that point. And I remember when it happened, all the people who were naysayers in my universe, they were were saying, well, see, we told you it wouldn't be a place for you to move, and there's your proof. I just remember hearing that over and over again, and it just sticks in my head. I should have ignored them and went anyway, but that's Mm. (laughs) whatever. I'm terrible. Yeah. Whenever I think of it, I, I think of that shot in Naked Gun 33 and a third where they're at the Academy Awards and it has a wide yeah. shot of the city. Another beautiful Oscar night. It, the whole city's on fire around the uh, yeah. Dorothy Campbell Pavilion. <laughs>